Two weeks from today, we will begin a brand new series called Following Jesus. It will be taken out of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew's Gospel sometimes earned the nickname either the Teaching Gospel or the Discipling Gospel, the Discipleship Gospel, because we have more of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew than anywhere else, even the other three Gospels. And Matthew seems to have organized his gospel around five sermons Jesus preached, possibly to imitate the five books of the Torah since his audience was a Jewish audience. But we're going to look at those five sermons in Matthew coming up in a couple weeks and walk through those for a number of weeks. I think you will find it encouraging, challenging, and also a huge help in us knowing what it means to follow Jesus and what it doesn't mean. I do invite you to open your Bibles, if you don't have them, to Ecclesiastes 12, actually 11 and 12. This weekend, we are finishing up a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book. It's a very unusual book. We called it Finding Life's Purpose. And what else could be more important in life than that? Finding Life's Purpose. The author of the book is called The Preacher, most likely Solomon. And this is someone who chased pleasures for years only to realize that the more he pleasure binged, the more he binged on pleasures, by the way, most of them good pleasures, but the more he binged on pleasures, the more depressed he became, the more despondent he became until he discovered the key to life, and that is fearing God and keeping His commandments. This morning, we're going to wrap up our series in the final two chapters of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is offering really what amounts to a series of advice, series of opinions inspired by the Holy Spirit, remembrances to those who he's writing his journal to in light of his pleasure safari, his failed pleasure experiment. So I call this this morning advice from a disappointed, disappointed hedonist disappointed pleasure seeker, a disillusioned pleasure seeker, a hedonist being someone who's pursuing pleasure for its own sake. In these final chapters of Solomon, we see at least, and I'm saying at least because there may be more, but I'm finding at least five critical reminders about life and death that will help us navigate life in this life and in the next life. So we're just going to dive into these one at a time. Our goal here at our church, if you're visiting, is to take books of the Bible or passages of the Bible and make sure we're walking through them and understanding what God says because it's so easy to come to the Bible and make it say what we want it to say based on our background, our temperament, our personality, our experiences, what the culture is saying at the moment, any given thing. And we keep reminding ourselves, the number one question is not, well, that's not the way I was raised, so that's not what it means, is it? The number one question is not, well, I don't like what it says, or I don't feel good about what it says. The number one question is not, what is our culture saying at the moment? The question always comes back to, what does the text say? What has God said? And we will find quite often God says things that are a jolt, a bit shocking to us. And we shouldn't be surprised that we read Scripture at times, in fact, a lot of the time, and find things that quite frankly shock our system, but bring joy to us when we understand them. So let's dive into these one at a time. Five 
reminders from Solomon, advice from a disappointed, disillusioned hedonist, pleasure seeker. Number one, remember Solomon is telling us the mysterious ways of God. This has been a nonstop theme in his book. I'm going to read the first two verses. He starts out a little different vein, but there's a reason he's saying this in the first two verses. He's saying these two things, these two sayings, and I'm going to show you why, in light of how brief and unpredictable life is. So, ship your grain across the sea, or as King James says, cast your bread on the water. After many days, you will receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come on the land. So, Solomon opens this section with a reminder of a common theme in the book, and that is being wise in light of how unpredictable life is, how un, how uh, how brief it is, how, how uh, much of a puzzle it is. Solomon has been using a word throughout the book. We've talked about it many times. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel just means either mist or a vapor or something momentary or transitory. On the other side, flip side, it also means something that is a paradox, a mystery, or just straight out uh, confusing to us. And Solomon is reminding, in light of that, he is saying in the first couple verses, stressing wise and broad investing both spiritually and financially because of the very fact that life is brief and unpredictable. The verses that follow this, verses 3 to 6, give a strong summons to remember the mysterious ways of God. He says, if clouds are full of water, verse 3, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls there it will lie... Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, reminder that baby in a womb is a full human being, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and in the evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which way will succeed, whether this or that or whether both will do well equally. So again, he's pointing us back to the mysterious ways of God. By the way, speaking of mysterious, look at verse 3. I just finished a biography on, you may know the name, R.C. Sproul, Robert Charles Sproul, senior, died a couple years ago in December of 2017. R.C. Sproul was a huge factor in the evangelical world. In reading his biography, it reminded me of something I had actually heard him say but never really elaborate on, and it was the verse that brought him to faith in Christ. So the verse that brought him to faith in Christ was verse 3, Ecclesiastes 11.3, if you look at it. I've never used Ecclesiastes 11.3 in evangelism. I don't think I ever will. But he says, and his biography, this new biography by Stephen Nichols backs up, that when he was in college, and it's still an unbeliever, a group of upperclassmen were sharing with him and doing a Bible study, and one of them, for some reason, nailed him with Ecclesiastes 11.3. <clears throat> and so it says, if clouds are full of water and pour rain out on the earth, whether a tree falls to the north or the south, the place where it falls, there it will lie. There you go. And Sproul said he went back to his dorm room that night, and that verse, by the power of God, absolutely terrified him because he pictured himself as that tree falling in the woods and rotting under the judgment of God. And he said it brought him to faith, which is a reminder of the power of God's Word. Even the strangest of verses when it comes to evangelism, mysterious ways of God.
So verses 3 to 6, the key phrase in this section, first six verses, is you do not know. It's used four times, once in verse 2, twice in verse 5, once in verse 6. You do not know, reminding us we don't know. And Solomon is just driving home something, he's been driving it home through this entire book. God's ways, frankly, are mysterious. Not to him, but to us. They are unpredictable from our perspective. It looks like life's going one way and suddenly it turns and goes another. We've talked about this. It's a puzzle, it's a mystery, it's an enigma. And it leaves us, frankly, baffled a lot of the time because his ways are so mysterious. They're heavy to us. They're unpredictable to us. Now, let me step back for a minute. We've noted, I said this a couple weeks ago, we've noted that many, many even who sit in Bible teaching churches, many who sit in churches, period, but even Bible teaching churches with Bibles open on their lap week in and week out, even though they know God is sovereign and God is mysterious, many sit in Bible teaching churches and gradually buy into something that is an entirely different view of God which is namely this, that he's very predictable. In fact, his ways are very calculated and very easy to figure out, and we might call this cause and effect theology. Actually, it's just an aberration or another version of prosperity theology. And it's, here's the belief, and a lot of Bible-believing people sitting in, like I said, Bible-teaching churches, Bibles open on their lap, slowly, gradually buy into this belief, and it's this, that God guarantees certain outcomes in our life if we faithfully serve Him. Most Bible-believing Christians would never say that out loud, but it is amazing that this stuff seeps into us and into how we read Scripture. Let me just give you some examples. A lot of people somehow convince themselves that if I if I raise my children right, I'll never have a prodigal. Or my kids are guaranteed to turn out okay. Or, another way to do it, if I serve God faithfully, I'll never lose my job. I'll never lose my marriage. I'll never lose my business. I'll never lose my ministry. Why? Because God automatically will guarantee, if I serve Him faithfully, that things will come out okay. You say, well, I, I would never believe that. And yet it is amazing how many of us set out and subtly assume that. Or if I trust God enough and have enough faith, I will never have a miscarriage. I will never struggle with anxiety and depression. I'll never struggle with substance addiction. I'll never get cancer. Or here's another way it often pans out. If I treat you the if I treat other people well, if I'm, if I'm always the peacemaker and I'm always the, the good guy, I'll always be respected in return. I'll always be admired. <laughs> and I'll never be mistreated, betrayed, or lied about. On and on the thinking goes. And we, and we subtly buy into this. And the problem is, when you go to the Bible, it says just the opposite. All you got to do is roll out people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, Jesus, on and on the list would go. People who were very faithful yet were mistreated, abused, persecuted, hunted down, hated, and sometimes even killed. 
And in verses 1 to 6, Solomon is saying, look, life often turns out totally different than you might expect. Why? Because we live in a sinful world, we live in a broken world. You've got to go back to Genesis 3. If Genesis 3 does not keep a huge perspective of the worldview in your mind, then you're not going to understand our planet. Because to have a worldview devoid of Genesis 3 and the fall and the sin effect on the planet, you're not going to understand our world. Look at verse 5. He hammers this home again. So you cannot understand the work of God. That's the NIV. English Standard Version says, you cannot know or you do not know the work of God. Both are good translations. Bottom line, Solomon keeps telling us over and over and over and over, quit thinking you have figured out God's ways. Because as soon as you think you have, (laughs) as soon as I think I have, it's going to go like that. Because life is heaven. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, young people, the doctrine of God's providence is so important in our Christian life and why it's so critical. You say, remind me again what's God's providence about? God's providence is this. He is all-knowing, He is all-powerful, and He's good. And we can trust Him no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what's happening on our planet. He's good. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, if we go back just a page, captures God's providence in a nutshell, captures Ecclesiastes in a nutshell, really. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. The righteous and the wise, and we know that all things beyond that Jesus said right down to when a sparrow falls out of a tree. But here he's just reminding us the righteous and the wise are in God's hands. I cannot recommend highly enough, I've been saying this several times, John Piper's newest book, Providence. It's a small book. It's only 711 pages. It's his life work. A number of our leaders have been reading it, a number of our elders and staff. I cannot recommend it highly enough to go to someone like a Piper who has invested his life in academic research, biblical preaching, and in the local church, and then comes out with a life work like this, his magnum opus, his book, Providence. If you want an older version of something along this line, I would highly recommend Arthur Pink in his book, Arthur Pink, the great Scottish preacher, his book, The Sovereignty of God. It's a game changer to read both of those. If you want, listen, if you want an anchor, if you want to help keep focused on what the Bible's saying and teaching, you have to go to good teachers because God gave the gift of teaching to the church and the gift of preaching. And so you turn to the people like Arthur Pink. You turn to the people like Lorraine Bettner, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. You turn to people like John Piper or R.C. Sproul because they help you stay focused on the text. A couple weeks ago, I quoted from the Westminster Confession on the Doctrine of Providence, which is a marvelous definition. Today, I'm going to switch it up and put up the definition from the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. I love this. This one's great. Question number 27. This should bring joy to the saints. If you want to dance in the aisle afterwards, you're welcome to do that too. David did. 
Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? If you know Jesus, this answer will encourage you hugely. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. If you don't use a catechism with your children, you should. This is a good one. Friends, that is needed hope for weary souls. And it reminds us our heavenly Father knows best and that we can trust His loving providence even when, hear this, even when His loving providence results in a painful past, painful circumstances, even when it results in weeping and heartache and sorrow and loss Because it's sorrow and loss inflicted by a loving God who is working out all things for His glory and our good. As Charlie Spurgeon put it so well, had any other condition been better for you than the one you're currently in, divine love would have put you there. That's a good quote. Maybe I'll read it one more time. Had any other condition been better for you than the one you are in currently, divine love would have put you there. Close quote. Beloved, remember the mysterious ways of God. He is all-powerful, He is all-wise, and He is good. He's good. That is the only way to navigate this crazy planet and not go crazy, is to remember God's good. I spent most of my time on the first point this morning because it is, I think, the dominant thing in Ecclesiastes. Now we're going to walk through the other four reminders a little bit quicker. Number two, remember that God commands joy and delight. This is a shock to a lot of God's people. We've learned that Solomon is not anti-pleasure. Verses 7 through the first part of verse 9. See, what he's doing in Ecclesiastes is he's not saying Don't ever have fun. Don't enjoy good food, good drink, good friends, good whatever. That's not his point. His point is don't don't turn good things into ultimate things. That's what he's saying. Don't take sports or food or or sex or relationships or marriage or kids or leisure or study or, or, or shopping or whatever, and don't make them ultimate. If you do, it's all going to come falling apart because it's all hevel. Verses 7 to 9 of chapter 11. He says, Life is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let him enjoy them all. That is a constant refrain in this book. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. That's true. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joys in the days of your youth. Youth is a little bit of a relative category in in wisdom literature. It pretty much means anybody who's still upright, moving around, and doing things. It it is. There's not a category of teenager in the Bible. The word teenager is fairly new, even in the lexicon in Western culture. Youth 
again, in wisdom literature, pretty much means you're still vigorous and you're still doing things in life. And this is a reminder we are called to enjoy God. Look, a lot of Christians, if you were to survey them, would be surprised and a little bit shocked to be reminded that enjoying God is a matter of obedience. Yes, you heard me right. Enjoying God, this is, I'm preaching myself because I struggle with this, is a, is a matter of obedience. Let me give you just two verses. These are not suggestions. Psalm 37, 4, delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. That's not a suggestion. It's not a piece of advice from a, from a gossip columnist or Dr. Phil or Oprah. That is a command from God. Or Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And I could go on and on and on. Alexander McLaren, another great Scottish preacher, said it this way, seeking joy in God is a matter of Christian duty. Christian duty. Here's what it means. Let me put it a different way just to jolt you. Holiness is not enough in the Christian life. Think about that for a minute. Holiness is not enough. The Christian life is supposed to be more than just rolling up our sleeves in raw obedience. Jesus said, I came to give them, meaning his people, the full measure of my joy. It means God doesn't want to just be known. He wants to be enjoyed. Why? Because when your kids are enjoying you, you get more glory. And when we are enjoying God, his people are enjoying him, he gets more glory. God doesn't want to just be known. He wants to be enjoyed. Let me, let me do it in other words. In other words, hear this, failure to enjoy God isn't just unfortunate, it's disobedience. I have to look at it that way for me. Failure to pursue joy in God, failure to preach the gospel to myself, failure to preach gospel promises to myself, and failure to be joyful, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would articulate in his great classic spiritual depression, that's not just an unfortunate thing. Oh, that's, you know, unfortunately you're a joyless Christian. That's a contradiction, and it's disobedience. I'm going to say one more thing under this. Hear this. The more joyful you are, the more like God you are. The more joyful I am, the more like God I am. God commands joy and delight for His people. It's not just a nice thing if it happens to you. If you are overall a joyless professing Christian, there's something wrong. You're either not saved or there's something seriously wrong and there's sin in your life. And the sin may be the sin of disbelief and not trusting God in His providence. Third, remember that Judgment Day is coming. This, this sermon swings wildly from, from encouragement to, to warning to back and forth. But remember, warning is an act of love. Remember, Judgment Day is coming. Verse 9, and last part of verse 9 and verse 10, for, note that, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment, so then banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Then go to the last verse of the book, chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including, this is what's especially terrifying, every hidden thing. Some of you this morning are in a 
stage where you have a backstage life of sin at the moment and you think it's going to stay hidden. Let me give you a memo. Memo. It won't. There is a very high probability it will come out in this life sooner than you expected, and it's certainly going to come out in the next life. So if right now you are lying to your parents, if you're involved in a secret life of pornography or gambling or substance addiction, or you're involved in some form of extortion or stealing or abuse or something, fill in the blank, may God help you tremble this morning and come to repentance before you face Him and answer to Him, and it's not covered, and it's not addressed, or you find out you weren't really saved. It's very clear, all things will be eventually judged, and God's standard is His blazing holiness. That comes out over and over again in the Bible. In the Bible, uh, a number of years ago, another church we were in, I had a woman who was coming who was very uh, excited when she first came and was very into spiritual things. And, but the more she sat in our church, the more she was turned off by an emphasis on obedience and God's holiness. And she finally left, and as she left, she said, I'm paraphrasing her, but this is what she said, I'm living at an acceptable level of morality. I'm fine. Problem is, we're not calibrated by everyone else's morality. God doesn't grade on a curve. On Judgment Day, He grades by His own standards. See, she was announcing the philosophy of moralism, and it's amazing how much moralism has also seeped into the average evangelical Bible-believing church. We'd never say it out loud, but there's a sort of quiet buying into, yeah, as long as I pay my taxes reasonably honestly most of the time, and I, and I give to United Way, and I coach Little League, and I, get, you know, I go to church at least occasionally, uh, I'm going to be okay. Sure, brutal dictators like Vladimir Putin or Mao or Hitler or Stalin, they better, they better worry about Judgment Day. So should drug dealers and serial rapists and child molesters. They better worry because they're going to get it, which is true if they're not saved. But I'm okay because I'm at an acceptable level, uh, level of uh, morality. Compared to all them, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. The problem is the Bible says we're rebels against God's law. We're not calibrated against everybody else. And Solomon reminds us of it throughout his book. Here's just one verse from the New Testament. First, it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 7, I think it's verse 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire. This is not a timid verse, people. The Lord Jesus will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus, and they will be punished with everlasting destruction forever separated from the Lord. Those are terrifying verses, but they have to be said because too many clergy avoid it, and they're lying to their people. Fourth, remember to order your priorities early on. Chapter 12, verse 1, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Sin can appear pleasant and easy early in life, especially the healthier you are and the more you can move around and feel good, but we have to for never forget, friends. That as we age, 
our sin will catch up with us. And there is a category that a lot of Christians never think about. We know there's consequences to unforgiven sin, but there's a category in the Bible of consequences for forgiven sin. You think of Saul, you think of David, you could go down the line. There are consequences at times that can take a toll, even us as we age, in our older age, when grievous sin and consequences of it can catch up to us. It doesn't mean we're not forgiven, but it can be very hard sometimes to shake regret. The word before appears three times in the Hebrew text in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12. So chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, three times in the Hebrew text, the word before comes in verse 1, before the days of trouble come, comes in verse 2, before sun, light, moon, and stars grow dark, and in verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is severed. Just reminding us, make sure while you still have time and things are going well, you remember to obey and honor God. Which brings us to the last reminder, one that he has been saying all along, remember to fear God. Verses 13 and 14, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. We've noted the most repeated command in the Bible is what? fear not. And yet, regularly we're told, oh, but fear God. Fear God. Psalm 34, 9, fear the Lord, you His saints. So if you're here and you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, He says, fear Him. There's abundant verses even in Psalms. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Proverbs. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Psalm 111. I could go on and on and on and on and repeat and recite verses about this. Isaiah 8.13, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Matthew 10.28 says, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So I want to close this way. If fearing God is so central to finding wisdom, joy, and lasting satisfaction in life, and it is, it is, what does it really mean to fear God? We have covered this, but I think this is where we have to land ending this series today. So what does it really mean to fear God? And this is our summons, and I want to just break it into three things. Here we go. Ready? Number one, to fear God above all is to remember He is the great judge of the whole earth. And all of history is moving in a linear way towards that great day. I've quoted Luther many times. I have two days on my calendar, said Martin Luther, the great German monk, 500 years ago. Today and that day. And we need to think of that, ladies and gentlemen, when we sin. That Jesus said, even down to every careless word I have spoken, if it is not covered by the blood of Christ, I will have to answer for it. Revelation 20, verse 12, has to be one of the great verses reminding us that history is moving towards 
the great day of judgment. This is a very different worldview than, for instance, Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. They have this secular view of, of, of world history and all things come out and shake out in transmigration and reincarnation. That's completely alien to what the Bible teaches, that one life, then judgment, and history is moving towards that. Revelation 20, 12 says it this way, I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, that is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So to fear God is to remember, to remember that He is the great judge of all the earth and history is moving towards that day. Secondly, fear God is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're left with just a general theism and a belief in God is somehow that saves you. That doesn't save you. A general belief in God saves nobody. I hear people at, when I ask, you know, is so-and-so a Christian? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Well, so does the devil, and so do all the demons, and so do Muslims. Good, sincere Muslims, Mormons, Jews. There's all kinds of people who believe in God around the world. That general belief in God doesn't save anybody. The Bible says, I have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I didn't say it, Jesus said it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You may say, wow, that's narrow-minded. That's your call. I'm glad there's a way left to be reconciled to God, quite honestly. And so the fear of God is to repent, believe the gospel that Jesus is the only begotten Son and He is the only way to the Father. You cannot fear God if you ignore Jesus. He was very explicit about that. And lastly, and this has to be said because Solomon says it right here at the end, to fear God is to obey His commandments, His commands. He's very clear this is the whole duty of mankind Fear God and keep His commandments. Bible teaches that a major characteristic of anyone who really fears the Lord is obedience to the Lord in all areas. Sexual purity, honesty, integrity, baptism, very first command given to anybody. word baptizo in Greek, we only transliterate it in our Bible. If you translate it, it's the word immersion, submerge, going under, coming out, Why? Identifying publicly with Christ. It is the very first command given to anybody. If you say you know Jesus and you haven't done it, it means you're being disobedient. Sexual purity, my finances, my relationships, obedience, following the commandments of Jesus and all, tithing to my local church, serving in my local church, how I treat my kids, discipling, evangelizing my children, right down the line, fear of God means obedience to His commands. Here's how Deuteronomy 10.12 puts it, and notice it connects fear of the Lord with obedience. Deuteronomy 10.12, what does the Lord your God require of you? I like these verses that put things right down, just summarize it. What does God require of you? Fear the Lord your God and walk in some of His ways. No. Walk in all of his ways. I want to throw something in your hopper. Okay? This is, that's usually code for 
I want to throw you a curveball. In Matthew 28, Jesus was finally finishing his ministry. He'd risen from the dead. He had his men together. And he was giving him his last words. If your time comes and you know it's your last words, those are pretty significant. Okay? If you had your kids around your deathbed, final words, you wouldn't say, remember to keep the snowblower full of gas and don't forget, to, you, know, you wouldn't say, you, you, would, you would laser beam it on, this, I need you to remember this, I'm, I'm leaving. So we assume that his final words in Matthew 28 are pretty serious. And when he had his men together, he was very deliberate about his focus. He could have said all kinds of things. Think of this, he, he'd risen from the dead, he was leaving him, he could have said, hey, remember my cross. He could have said, remember to take the gospel to all peoples. He could have said, remember my resurrection and live in resurrection power. He could have said, remember the Holy Spirit's coming, Pentecost Day. He could have said all kinds of stuff. What did he focus on? What did he draw their attention to? The last thing Jesus did was to focus his disciples on his commands. And he said, I want you to take my commands and teach them to the nations. He said, make disciples of all ethne, pantata ethne, all nations, baptized. them to obey everything I have commanded. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. In other words, I'm, we're not just to go teach others to know the commands of Jesus. We're to teach the nations to do the commands of Jesus. That was the last focus Jesus impressed on his disciples. That's worth chewing on. I close with this gospel promise. If you're here today and you know Christ and you have believed the gospel and you've gone through a radical rebirth and you're being transformed from the inside out and you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, hear this gospel promise from John chapter 14, verse 21. Love this. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, the Greek is present tense. Whoever, whoever has my commands and is keeping them is the one who loves me. And then hear this, beloved, if you know Jesus. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, and I will show myself to them. Close quote. That is gospel hope. And that's the kind of stuff we have to preach to ourselves in this crazy world full of hevel. That's how we keep our footing and we stay joyful and we stay Christ-centered. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and this crazy journey we have been on and for Solomon. And Father, I thank you for picking Solomon to write this book because he is a graphic reminder of imperfection. And he's an encouragement to all of us that you don't call perfect people. You call broken, messed up, wounded, sin-scarred people. You redeem them and make them your own. We thank you for what he has taught us. Thank you for those getting baptized right now in obedience to Christ. May this encourage others to step forward in obedience in the coming years and months and be baptized.
Thank you for the work you're doing in our church right now. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' mighty and glorious name. Amen.